Let me open us in prayer real quickly. Father, thank you for this time where we can spend in your word and we pray that you would consecrate it and that your word would go forth to be used by your spirit, Father, to, as Chad prayed, to make us more faithful image bearers of our King. We ask this in your name. Amen. Before I read John 10, let me just kind of set ourselves up by way of introduction and speak a little bit to the literary context of our passage this morning. Our passage is actually part of a larger literary unit, which begins in the first verse of chapter 9. And that's the account of Jesus' Sabbath healing of the man that was born blind. We talked about that last week. I'm sure you'll remember. In fact, the chapter division at the beginning of chapter 10 in our current passage is an example of a really poorly placed chapter break. And it's important to understand that the chapter breaks in your Bible are not part of the inspired text. In fact, they were added in the early 13th century, and they seem to have stuck ever since. Unfortunately for our case, the chapter break is a distraction to the author's overall literary flow. Specifically, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 21, which is our passage this morning, that is a continuation of Jesus' response to the Pharisees in 940, who asked Jesus, are we also blind? The response of the Jews at the end of our passage in verse 21, when they respond, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Leave no doubt that the occasion of this passage is the controversy over Jesus' healing of the man born blind. And so it's critical that we remember the account of the blind man John just reported, because in all probability it was Jesus' eyewitness testimony of the Pharisees' abusive treatment of this man, as well as his parents, that prompted Jesus to say the things that he's about to say. In other words, it was the confrontation between the healed man and the Pharisees that was the occasion of Jesus' discourse. Our current scene really begins with Jesus' encounter with the former blind man after actively seeking him out. You may recall that in verse 35, Jesus asked the man, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man responds, well, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. The man came to faith as indicated in verse 38, where John reports or where the man proclaims, Lord, I believe. And then John tells us that he worshiped him. Jesus then said, for judgment, I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Now, it's at this point, the Pharisees who were listening to that or read eavesdropping upon that conversation, or they, they were a bit indignant, and they responded, are we blind also? Now, there's no indication in our text of any delay. There's no delay in time or shift in scene. And so it's most likely that the former blind man is still in the proximity of Jesus as he's offering his response to that question. And, and thus, he is a... Uh, a listener to the words that Jesus is about to speak. And so it's for that reason that I want to suggest to you that, in fact, Jesus may be addressing two distinct audiences. On one hand, our Lord is responding to the Pharisees' question, are we blind also? But on the other hand, 
Jesus' disclosure of his pastoral care and compassion may also be intended to minister to the comfort of our Lord's newest follower, the man whose sight was recently restored, a former beggar who now found himself cast out of the synagogue, cut off from whatever minimal sustenance he previously enjoyed. In this sense, Jesus may be providing this man with a richer answer to his earlier question. Do you remember what he asked earlier? And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? If that's the case, and and I believe that it is, then the primary action of our Lord in today's text is the act of comforting his followers amidst the realities of a world broken by sin. And the response that God desires for you and I in response to this discourse is that we would be comforted. Perhaps the best way for us to hear, to hear Jesus' words as he intended us to hear them, is to imagine ourselves hearing Jesus' words through the ears of this man recently restored of his sight, both physically and spiritually. Now, before we read the text, let me mention quickly something about time frame. John identifies the time frame of our current passage in verse 1022. He explains that it was the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication was an eight-day celebration that took place in December. Now, I'm not going to take the time to develop this in detail, but it's very, very probable that the events all the way from chapter 8, verse 12, through the end of chapter 10, verse 42, which includes our current passage, all occurred within the time frame of this eight-day period. And beyond that, it's also important to understand that the December that we're speaking of is the December prior to Jesus' death and resurrection. So, in fact, the occasion of this discourse takes place roughly three to four months before the crucifixion and Christ's resurrection. Well, with that said, let me, let me read our passage. <clears throat> truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all, all, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? In verses 1 through 6, Jesus begins his discourse by introducing to us an extended metaphor concerning the shepherd and his sheep. Such pastoral imagery is something Jesus' Jesus' listeners would have been very familiar with for two reasons. First of all, the sheep were a central part of ancient Israel's daily experience. Secondly, the imagery of sheep and shepherd are frequently occurring throughout the Old Testament. Now, to best grasp Jesus' words, it's helpful to understand a few things about sheep and shepherding that would have been obvious to Jesus' listeners. Some of these you might be familiar with, others less so. Sheep were totally dependent upon shepherds for protection, for grazing, for watering, for shelter, and for tending to their injuries. In fact, sheep would not survive without a shepherd. Shepherds were a constant companion to the sheep. They were also figures of authority and leadership to the animals under their care. Not only are sheep dependent creatures, they are shockingly unintelligent, prone to wonder, and believe it or not, unable to find their way to the sheepfold even when it is in plain sight. Shepherds led their sheep to open grazing lands during the day and herded their flocks into the protection of the sheepfold in the evening. Now, a sheepfold was a square structure about 50 to 60 feet long per side. It was roofless, and it it was comprised of stone walls about 8 or 10 feet high. And it had a single door through which the shepherd led the sheep in and out. A single sheepfold actually accommodated numerous flocks. Even though the flocks mingled through the night, In the morning, each shepherd would call their sheep, and the sheep would immediately separate into their respective herds, each recognizing the voice of their shepherd. So that's kind of the background on sheep and shepherding. And Jesus begins his discourse by introducing us to a character that he refers to as a thief and a robber. And Jesus goes on to present two bold contrasts between the shepherd and the sheep. The first of these contrasts is presented in verses 1 through the first half of verse 3. I want you to notice that the thief and the shepherd are differentiated from each other by how they attempt to gain access to the sheepfold. The shepherd enters through the door, that he's welcomed by the gatekeeper, while the thief enters illicitly, that is, illegally or wrongly. Now, you might be asking, well, what, who Who is the identity of this thief and robber? And I think we can consider two facts to make the answer to that abundantly clear. 
First of all, I want you to remember that Jesus had just been an eyewitness to the Pharisees' treatment, to their cruel treatment of the former blind man and his parents. So keep that in mind. Secondly, it's important that we orient us to some particular Old Testament passages to understand Christ's analogy rightly. So turn, if you will, to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, to be exact. And let me read to you the first four verses. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. And turn a few pages ahead to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34. Now this entire chapter is important for setting the context of Jesus' sheep analogy that he's, uh, he's, he's describing to us. So I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to read some select parts. <clears throat> I'm going to read um, the first six verses. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And jump down to verses 22. I'm sorry, verses 10, 10 through 12. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And finally, verses 23 through 24. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And so by now, hopefully, it's 
probably pretty obvious. The shepherd is Jesus and the thief and robber correspond to the Pharisees, Israel's illegitimate and faithless leaders of the people. The gatekeeper corresponds to the father and the sheep correspond to God's covenant people. So in this opening contrast and throughout Jesus' entire metaphor, Jesus harshly, harshly indicts Israel's leadership as illegitimate under shepherds. Now, Jesus presents his second contrast, beginning in the second half of verse three through through verse five. And notice how the shepherd is differentiated from the thief in two other important ways. The shepherd calls his own sheep. That is, the thief has no relationship with the sheep. The shepherd calls his own sheep by name. Now, this is a proclamation of the shepherd's knowledge and concern for the sheep, both of which the thief lacks. Now, it should deeply encourage us that Jesus knows us by name. Jesus Christ bore an unimaginable cost to rescue those the Father gave him. So you can be sure that he most certainly knows you by name. He knows those for whom his flesh was crushed. In this second contrast, the Lord emphasizes the actions of the shepherd and the subsequent actions of the sheep. So look again. Notice the shepherd calls, leads, and goes before the sheep. And in response to this, the sheep hear the shepherd, they know his voice, and they follow him. In this analogy, Jesus is describing the morning activity of the sheepfold that we just described a few moments earlier. Each shepherd called their sheep, and the mingled flocks separated. Each shepherd then led his flock out of the sheepfold and departed for the day's grazing pasture. Notice Jesus' emphasis upon hearing the shepherd's voice and following him. The idea here is that the sheep pursued the shepherd because he was their sole source of provision and protection. So the idea that Jesus makes in these early verses is that God's people obey Yahweh's voice, the true shepherd, not Israel's false leaders. Again, remember our context. Jesus is explaining to the Pharisees the action of the man born blind and others like him, while at the same time comforting this man, encouraging him that he has heard and followed well. And then finally, in verse 6, John comments that the Pharisees understood none of this. In verses 7 through 16, Jesus makes two of his I am statements. Now, there are a total of seven of these I am statements in the Gospel of John, and two of them are in our present passage. In fact, he states each I am statement twice, which provides a certain structure to the flow of our text. Throughout these declarations, Jesus illustrates the care, the compassion, and the abundant life with which he nurtures his true followers. And so it's in verse 7 through 10, two times, Jesus proclaims, I am the door. Now, before we consider what Jesus means, I want you to notice first that John begins this section of the text with a brief introductory remark. He says, so Jesus again said to them, I'm stressing the word again. The implication of this word is that Jesus is continuing something. 
And what he's continuing is the scathing contrast that he started in verses one through six. Specifically, Jesus proclamation of who he is and what he offers is presented against the backdrop of Israel's faithless leaders. Jesus's words in verse eight, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, is most likely a reference to the line of high priests that led God's people during the centuries and decades preceding Jesus's arrival. And in verse 10, Jesus describes the abundant life he offers as that which is the polar opposite of the spiritual robbery, death, and destruction brought about by Israel's current shepherds. And so now it's fair to ask ourselves the question, what did Jesus mean when he said, I am the door? When we first hear these words, they may strike us as a bit cryptic, particularly since it's a different metaphor than Jesus as shepherd that exists both in the prior statements and in the statements soon to follow. But when Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep, he's talking about the door or gate of the sheepfold. Now here it's helpful to think like a sheep. The sheep, to the sheep, the door of the sheepfold was always something good. It was always something good. In the evening, when the shepherd led the sheep into the sheepfold for safekeeping, their passageway through the door meant safety and security, protection from predators. On the other hand, in the morning, when the shepherd led the sheep out of the sheepfold, their passageway through the door meant well-watered pastures for grazing and drinking. It meant they would soon be satisfied. So what the sheepfold gate was to the literal sheep, Jesus is to us, both now and into our eternal future. And this is precisely what Jesus is saying in verses 9 and 10. He says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. And Jesus continues in verse 10. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Well, what is this abundant life that Jesus promises us? Well, let me tell you, it certainly doesn't mean our best life now. It doesn't mean that all of our worldly ambitions, desires, and dreams will suddenly come true. Jesus did not die so that you could retire in affluence. Jesus did not die so that you could be promoted. Jesus did not die so that people would love you and think that you're a wonderful person. I mean, after all, Jesus said, or he is about to say in John 15, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And in John 16, he will say, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Matthew recovers Jesus' words when he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So if all that's true, then it still remains a fair question. What is, in fact, then the abundant life that Jesus promises? Well, Scripture uses many descriptions and metaphors to answer this question. Though the abundant life Jesus promises won't be fully realized until we're united with Christ face to face, there is still there is still a very real sense in which our Lord expects us to experience some aspect of this abundant life here and now. Why do I say that? Well, again, back to what Jesus said. Consider what he says in John 16. 
he tells his disciples, I have said these things to you. Why? That in me you may have peace. And then, earlier in John 15, he said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. It's why Paul wrote in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. The abundant life that Jesus talks about isn't rooted in the notion of having everything that, in our natural mind, we think we want. Abundant life is that ever-deepening discovery that Jesus Christ himself is the fulfillment and satisfaction of everything, everything we were created to yearn for and enjoy. Abundant life is nothing less than living every moment in light of the practical consequences of having been redeemed by Christ in order to be united with him forever. Jesus Christ is the door, the only door through whom his hearers enter into saving faith and experience the abundance, the abundant life that Jesus promised. In verses 11 through 16, Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. And there is absolutely no doubt that through these words, Jesus is connecting himself to the comfort and the promise of Psalm 23, as well as other positive shepherd imagery throughout Old Testament promise. But along with this declaration, our, our Lord's words shift a bit in their emphasis. Up until now, Jesus relied upon the mechanism of contrast to expose his supremacy over and against the squandered stewardship, injustice, and faithlessness of Israel's spiritual leadership, indicting them as thieves, robbers, and strangers to the sheep of Israel. But what's noteworthy throughout the rest of Jesus' discourse are statements that Jesus will make that he hasn't mentioned before in his public ministry, or at least hasn't emphasized in the way he's about to emphasize them. So in this sense, Jesus' words in verses 11 through 16 are a turning point where Jesus' discourse starts to take on a more revelatory tone and things start to build towards a climax in which Jesus' final words will no longer be framed in pastoral analogy but are clear theological statements of our Lord's true identity and work. And the result of this movement is that the Lord's words are an even greater source of comfort to his followers as we are stunned by the unchallengeable supremacy of the shepherd who pursues and recovers the unworthy to be his flock. So let's see how this works out. In terms of the shift in tone I've just mentioned, verses 11 through 13 are a transition. It's a transition because it includes both new revelation, or at least newly emphasized revelation, as well as Jesus' last contrast. So there's a little bit of both elements. Building upon his earlier analogy, Jesus doesn't just claim to be the shepherd of verses 1 through 5, but he declares himself to be the good shepherd. The key word is the word good. 
So what puts the good in the good shepherd? Well, the first occurrence of this answer is found in the second half of verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And it's this idea, it's this idea that it's this statement that is the big idea that drives the rest of Jesus's discourse. In fact, in addition to verse 11, Jesus will repeat this statement in verse 15 and again in verse 17 and in 18. Now, this was a shocking statement to Jesus's listeners. Why is that so? Well, let's remember our time frame. It's about four months before Jesus would go to the cross. Jesus's earthly ministry is quickly approaching its final days. Time is getting short. So what was spoken of before, perhaps vaguely, is being spoken of now with increasing clarity. In Jesus's recent confrontation with the Pharisees that John recorded in chapters 7 and 8, Jesus indeed alluded to his imminent death. But I want you to notice that he said nothing of its purpose. Listen to what he told the Pharisees in chapter 7. I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am going, where I am, you cannot come. So again, we see a statement of imminent departure, but absolutely no clarification as to why he's departing. Now, Jesus' bread of life discourse reached its climax when Jesus alluded to his sacrificial death. So in a sense, he provides a reason for his death. But again, it was imagery that was so couched in controversy, uh, so, so couched in controversy, and the effect of Jesus' words were that those who were following Jesus out of self-serving reasons abandoned him. Jesus said in chapter 6, verse 51, he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And here's his purpose statement. And the bread that I give, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So there's his purpose for his death. But again, no one got it. And in fact, the words he says a few seconds later absolutely offend and push, push the uh, false followers away. Because a few verses later he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Of course, he, he embellishes that statement yet even more to the effect that folks were so offended. Any allusion to the rationale of why Christ would die was lost among that audience. Much earlier in his ministry, Jesus privately revealed to Nicodemus this following point. He said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, while Jesus' private words to Nicodemus and Jesus' words to the crowds during the Bread of Life discourse may strike us as reasonably transparent explanations of why Jesus would die, they were hardly clear in the ears and minds of Jesus' listeners. But here in our current passage, Jesus speaks as plainly as he has ever spoken to date, shedding light on the purposes of his, of his death in advance of the events that would soon follow a few months later. Jesus will die for God's covenant people. Verses 11 through 13 are also Jesus' final contrast. 
Notice that the good shepherd and the hired hand are contrasted to each other based upon their actions and their relationship to the sheep. This final contrast exalts the faithfulness and virtue of Christ's work over and against the failures of Israel's faithless shepherds, condemning Israel's corrupt leadership as self-loving opportunists who care nothing for God's people. And we come to Jesus' profound statement in verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. Jesus just said that the knowledge between himself and his followers is the same as the knowledge between the father and the son. Jesus is referring to an intimate relationship that involves deep feelings of love between the father and the son and subsequently, the son and his followers. But as comforting as this is, Jesus is doing more than ministering comfort. He's revealing the mark of true discipleship. Here's what I want you to notice. It's a love relationship that prompts obedience. Listen again to what Jesus explained to the Pharisees in chapter 8, verse 55, regarding Jesus' knowledge of the Father. Jesus told the Pharisees, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him. And here's the key. And I keep his word. Now, let's return to our text. And notice the next thing Jesus says after saying that he knows the Father. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. And here it is. And I lay down my life for the sheep. You see, the deep love relationship between the father and son expresses itself in the son's obedience to the will of the father. That's why Jesus said earlier, or in the same way, the deep love relationship between the son and his followers expresses itself in the obedience of the believer to the will of the Son. And that's why Jesus said earlier in verse 4 that the sheep know his voice, they know the voice of the shepherd, and what? They follow him. And, And in a few seconds in verse 16, Jesus will mention other sheep that will listen to his voice. Implication, they will follow. And later, in verse 27, Jesus will say, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see the emphasis, not just on hearing, but on following. John, the writer of our gospel, advances this same idea in his first epistle, bringing together the idea of the knowledge between the the son and his followers, bringing together the idea of obedience and, and obedience being the expression of that love. Listen to what he says. In 1 John 2, verses 4 and 5, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. The intimacy 
between Jesus and his followers expresses itself in the obedience of the believer to the Son. In verse 16, Jesus says something that he never said before in his public ministry. He proclaims, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is an amazing statement. Jesus is declaring that the significance of who he is and the work that he will accomplish has implications far beyond the context of first century Palestine. And in making this statement, Jesus is revealing to his listeners that he is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises. In particular, two things. Jesus is the... Is the uh, Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah and two, God's ultimate saving act will redeem all the nations as well as Israel. Listen to these Old Testament promises. If you'd like, turn in your Bible to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And skip ahead to Isaiah 56, the second half, starting in the second half of verse 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares... I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. You see, Jesus is declaring himself to be the light for the nations of Isaiah 49 and the one to whom others are gathered in Isaiah 56. And in so doing, to those who have ears to hear, Jesus is affirming his messianic identity and the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's saving plan. This is a direct assault upon the arrogance of the Pharisees, serving them notice that the events of the coming weeks are not ultimately about them. And at the same time, Jesus is ministering further comfort to his followers, reminding them that they are part of something much, much bigger than themselves. And it's finally in verses 17 and 18 where we reach the climax of Jesus' discourse. In a stunning shift in tone, Jesus lays aside the shepherd analogies that up until now have framed his speech, and Jesus talks plainly about both his resurrection and his sovereign authority. In verse 17, Jesus proclaims, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Twice before, Jesus mentioned that he would lay down his life for the sheep. He said that in verse 11, and he said that in verse 15. But in this third statement, Jesus adds that he will take it up again. This is a compelling revelation. For the first time in John's gospel, Jesus foretells of his subsequent resurrection. Jesus' words, in verse 18, Jesus' words reach their climax as he boldly proclaims his authority over his life, 
his death and his resurrection, explaining that no one, absolutely no one takes his life from him. But the life he gives for his followers, he gives freely as an act of sovereign choice. The Lord says all of this in no less than five assertions. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Once again, we need to consider the impact of Jesus's words in light of the two audiences that Jesus was speaking to. Like his earlier comments in verse 16, this was a direct strike against the arrogant confidence of Jesus's enemies, declaring their absolute impotence in the face of divine sovereignty. Though the Pharisees would appear to be successful in their plan to kill Jesus, Jesus's words leave no doubt that their effects, their efforts would come together solely solely at the pleasure of Jesus Christ's sovereign prerogative. And to his followers, Jesus' closing revelation ministered the ultimate source of comfort. The good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep is the omnipotent one who rules over all the earth and the cosmos. (coughs) Excuse me. Finally, in verses 19 through 21, John ends this literary unit by informing the reader of the division that ensued among the Jews because of Jesus' words. In verse 20, John tells us that many people rejected Jesus' words. They were filled with hatred as much as they were filled with delusion, accusing Jesus of demonic possession and insanity. But as John will point out at the end of the chapter, Jesus' declaration that his sheep hear his voice and follow him will be vindicated beyond simply the response of the man born blind. John gives us a little glimpse of this, presenting the reaction of others who were not convinced of the accusations thrown about by Jesus' enemies. He doesn't credit them with belief quite yet, But he does make it clear that they were weighing what they saw and heard, responding, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open up the eyes of the blind? So let me share a few closing, final closing closing thoughts. As we've been alluding to again and again, Jesus is doing two things in our passage. He's confronting the Pharisees indicting the corruption and illegitimacy of Israel's faithless leaders. But he's also revealing himself more fully, comforting the former blind man that Jesus recently healed. And so we ask, what does God expect of us in light of what we've just read? At the beginning of this message, I said that the primary action of God in today's text with respect to us, the reader, is the act of comforting his followers amidst the realities of a world broken by sin. God wants us to be comforted by the care and the compassion of our good shepherd. I want to briefly point out three things we need to do to experience the comfort 
that God desires for us to experience. First, you and I need to repent of our self-sufficiency and recognize the implications of being sheep. Though, you, though redeemed, you and I are still sheep. We still possess the inclination to wonder, and we are, by nature, needy creatures. Jesus said in John 15, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't please God while clinging to any form of self-reliance. We need to slay any sense of personal significance that might grow out of our natural abilities, our life experiences, or even our present circumstances. And we need to see ourselves as helpless sheep that are completely dependent upon the care and correction of our good shepherd. Secondly, we need to hear the shepherd's voice and follow it. How do we hear the voice of the shepherd? Well, it's not mystical, and it's certainly not magic. We hear the voice of our shepherd in his word. And so to say that we need to hear the shepherd's voice and follow it is the same thing as saying that we need to know God's word and obey it. But we need more than a general acquaintance with a few Bible themes and a handful of our favorite Bible verses. We need, in fact, to build a lifestyle, a lifestyle around the pursuit of God's word and then spend a lifetime pursuing it. So hear and follow the shepherd's voice. Know his word and obey it. And finally, we need to stand amazed at the willingness of our sovereign shepherd to lay down his life on our behalf. When Jesus said that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, Jesus meant that it was he and he alone who freely and willfully stood in your place and assumed full responsibility for your sin before the holy court of God's justice. He presented himself before the divine judge and proclaimed, I am the guilty one. And as a result of this plea, he bore the full weight and terror of the divine judgment that you deserved, hanging cursed on a cross for three literal God-forsaken hours. And then, in an act of sovereign authority, he surrendered his life and died. They buried him in a tomb, and three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And today, at this moment, the Good Shepherd is faithfully gathering the Father's sheep from among all the nations, calling, leading, caring, comforting, and protecting. He gathers his flock for that great day, that day when all that is wrong will be made right, and the glory of the Lord will fill the earth, and God's mighty saving act will be complete. And it will be proclaimed, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. So repent of your self-sufficiency and recognize the implications of being sheep. Hear the shepherd's voice and follow it. And stand amazed at the willingness of our sovereign shepherd 
to lay down his life on our behalf.